Hi, everybody. This is Jose Palomino with another episode of our podcast. And today's guest is Samantha Stone of Samantha Stone Marketing. And Samantha, Samantha has a unique and powerful view of how to engage with buyers in the complex sales. So what you do is you sell and market into an arena where it involves a lot of different people. It takes time. It takes different kinds of proof points and so on. You definitely do not want to miss this episode because you're going to get a succinct summary of an approach that probably is what you might be looking for right now. An approach to engaging with buyers on their terms in ways that makes you more valuable to them than ever before. So without further ado, let's welcome Samantha to our show. Well, welcome, Samantha, to the Revenue Throughput Podcast. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Well, Samantha, tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what you do and who you do it for. That's an excellent question. Um, So uh, we specialize in serving organizations that have complex buying processes. So multiple people are involved over extended period of time. Um, You'll have not just multiple decision makers, but probably different users, maybe than people who are funding. Um, And we help develop marketing strategies and sales support strategies that help those organizations grow and accelerate. Right. So companies that are selling, I mean, the thing that comes to mind because it go, reflecting it in my career would be like selling complex software and systems, for example, in the IT world. That goes through many stakeholders over a period of many months. And so it's a complex buying process. Um, is that the kind of thing that you would help people with somebody in that scenario or selling a big industrial service or machine or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. The reason I don't say B2B or, um, you know, or to companies is, Complex processes can um, be lots of things. Sometimes we sell to other businesses and it's actually a simple process. Things like um, office supplies. Sure. Typically you have a single person who makes a decision. You know, maybe if you're very, very big, you're you know, negotiating in a, in a more complex way. But for the most part, you, you, um, that's a straightforward process. We focus on the things that are um, more challenging to evaluate. Things that take a lot of people uh, a fair amount of time to determine what the right solution is for them. No, that and that's a particular that's an area that I'm particularly excited about because most of my career has been in the complex sale, right? So, um, and but but I love the way you framed it as the complex buying process. I did that on purpose. I'm glad you picked that up. (laughs) So, so I think it's worth uh digging into a little bit just why one of the first shifts to be successful at it is viewing it as a buying process versus a, a complex selling process. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, one of the things that is so easy to forget is that buyers spend a lot more time in their decision process about who to work with and how to prioritize the vendors they bring into their organization, not interacting with the vendor than they do interacting with your sales team. And we all track the sales process in our Salesforce automation systems, right? We understand when do we have a meeting? When do they visit our website? Maybe we demonstrate our product. Maybe we have to form a proposal. And because it's easy for us to track the selling process, we get too wrapped up into our specific interactions with the buyers. Those are important and can't be ignored. But if we focus exclusively on the times that they are interacting with us, we miss the opportunity to really help the buyer make a great decision and understand what we do. And that means they're having meetings where we're not involved at all. They're evaluating people that are not us, 
right? They're building justification documents to secure funding in their organization. If we take the time to map all the things the buyers do, even when we're not involved, we then have the opportunity to create content and to create interactions and to create support for them to be the best um, help that we can be as they go through their own processes. And that creates a magical trusted advisor relationship between our buyer and ourselves. It also sometimes shows some vulnerabilities that we don't like to hear about ourselves, right? It can be sort of uncomfortable to do this, but it's really important because that's the reality of the environment our buyers are in. So it creates empathy and it creates opportunities for us that we really should take advantage of. Now, what's interesting about that, that buyer's journey, let's say for the sake of argument, it's 20 steps over three months, just to make it simple. The things that I directly can control as a seller, make the proposal happen, you know, maybe do an ROI spreadsheet or whatever it is, a demo, as you said, of those 20 steps, maybe I'm only part of eight of those steps. Mm -hmm. But what you've called out here, which I think is really interesting, is if I really committed to create value in the other 12 steps, then at the end of the day, it becomes, you know, I mean, all things being equal, I'm pretty much, I've broken a lot of ties with my competition because I I added value in those 12 steps. So what are some of those steps where I'm not in the room and would not ordinarily think of putting it as a stage in my CRM, for example, but are actually places where I might be able to create value for for my customer? It's an excellent question. And I think it's, unrealistic to expect that we can help in every stage. People don't want our help in every stage, but we could do a lot more than we do today. And I'll give you a couple of good examples. So one of the things that we could do is when we have someone who is our champion, who's decided that they like us and they're our advocate and they want to, you know, make a case for why we're the right choice for them. Um, we think of them as a champion. Well, I love to do things like create champion kits, content that is not branded by my company, content that is objective content that helps that person build the business case for why they want to fund a project and fund a project with us. So um, that may be um, business justification brief templates. It may be um, objective product comparisons. It may be an RFP template, right? That I get it out that that's not completed, but things that help that champion do their job. So that's, you know, an example. A very different kind of example is to understand that um, they're going to be looking for information to validate um, the things that we say about ourselves. One of the places that buyers go to do that is product review sites, mm-hmm. right? Place Gartner has one, um, Trust Radius has one, and there are others that are that are out there where I'm going to go, and um, we don't control the content that is on those product review sites, but we can do two things. We can see what's being consumed on those sites and we can um, make sure that we're integrating and um, timing our cadences around activity that's happening there. And we can encourage our customers to put reviews on those sites, right? We can, we can take content from those review sites and we can include it in our sales presentations or on our web landing pages. Not things that we wrote, not our case studies that right. don't feel objective, but content that is coming through those third parties. Those are just two examples, but there's ways, those are things that we may insert ourselves. I'll give you just one last example. And that is how we participate in third-party events. 
So our buyers often go to conferences. It's more virtual these days or hybrid yeah. models than in person. But um, the, um, the show floor has evolved, right? It means something very, very different. When we do go to an event, whether we're just sending a salesperson or we have a booth or speaking on stage, how do we think about what that value we're bringing to that audience is? We're not going to be talking about our product, certainly not on stage. We're going to be talking about a problem and, and how people have solved it. And maybe that includes us and the, you know, the sort of the subtext. But those are all examples of ways that we can serve buyers outside when they normally interact with us as a vendor. And when we understand that and we plan for that, we build exactly what you just described, which is we are more valuable than the other people that they are considering because we've made this attempt to do that. Um, and then this, and, and we have to make a real attempt, right? We, we can't just say, hey, we're going to take all the things that we do really, really well, and that's the RFP template. We have to be uh, at least attempt to be objective or partner with someone that can be objective to deliver things that are really meaningful and trusted. So what's interesting about that, and I'm, I'm so glad the way you framed it at the, at the very end, uh, so many of these things could be, uh, somebody could listen and say, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll wire the RFP, right? You know, basically, or, or you know, I'll give them all the, all, all the equations that land on X and X is us. And so we'll always win. But that lacks integrity, that lacks sincerity, and it's not, I mean, transparently, it's people understand. I mean, these are smart people who are making these Nobody multi million dollars. Nobody is that. Right, exactly. They, they, look, they go, really? So why you, in fact, now you've gone the other way. You've wasted their time. Yeah. You haven't given anything valuable, except you've consumed some of the, the thing that they're most tight on, which is, of course, you know, just the time, attention, and all that focus. So I love the idea of saying, well, what if I actually understood the buyer's journey in my product category well enough that I could create some tools that make that journey easier for real. That's a radical thought. So, so here's a question for you. Is that in, in your travels as you've worked with clients and maybe people engage with you because they already believe that, but, but I wonder, do people need a little bit of explanation or persuading to believe that's even a good thing to do? In other words, it's so counter to, you know, classic hard charging sales and marketing, you know, we just got to just knock it down. People understand a buyer has a lot more control. They're further down the funnel than ever before, but you're talking about almost like a next level type of experience. Uh, is that, is that a hard sell, so to speak for people to think that might work for them? And I'm really glad you asked that question. So conceptually, Nobody disagrees with this. Nobody, you don't make that statement. They go, you're wrong and you're crazy. <laughs> um, in 2022, everybody understand the buyer has some control and we need to address that. And if we don't, someone else will. Mm. Now, taking a leap from the philosophy and the theory of doing that to how do you actually build a buyer's journey that is, has integrity and value and is um, actually accurate is a whole different story. Because what most people want you to do is say, well, you work with IT managers all the time. What's my, what's the IT manager journey? I can't tell you that. It's specific to your business and your category and a whole bunch of things, right? It's specific to your brand. It's specific to all these different, the geographies you serve. Or they'll say, interview our salespeople. They know it inside and out. Mm. Well, and of course <laughs> I want to interview the salespeople because they help me build a hypothesis. But if we are not doing qualitative research in addition to whatever quantitative research and internal analysis that we have, we're, we'll never get this 
to a level that differentiates you. You will just be the same as everyone else. So the work I have to do sometimes is to convince people to take the time to take the step back and objectively do qualitative research talking with people because we may know what people are doing from data. We don't know why. And we need to understand why to do this incredibly well. And that doesn't mean guess. And that doesn't mean just listen to the salesperson's perspective. And by the way, it's not because salespeople are ignorant or because salespeople don't care or because it's because they're salespeople. So inherently their interaction with a buyer has a specific context around it. We need to remove that context and really observe a buyer in their sort of natural environment. So I appreciate Samantha what you said is the salespeople gives you might give you enough insight to develop a hypothesis, right? A basic an approach, something you want to explore. But really getting into and what's interesting about it is not just what is the buyer doing, because we could assume the buyer does things the way they do when they buy jet engines. Let's just say if you're selling jet, a big complex sale, right? Jet engines to airlines. Um, the buyer does what they do. We can observe that. And say we got it. We wrote it out. We put the flow chart together. What we don't do find out unless you have those qualitative uh, interactions, we don't really get to determine whether the buyer wants to do those steps or would prefer something else. They may find this is how I have to do it. We have to go through these seven steps or whatever it is that we have to do. This is how we do our cost justification. It's uh, this is how we get support for for an upgrade or whatever, and. By talking to them, it sounds like you can learn so much more about not only what are they doing currently, but more importantly, how would they like it to work? And then then you have a shot at being that resource that helps make their life better. That's very exciting. Absolutely. That's a great way of looking. Let me give you a really overly simple example of this, because this is really important. Um, You may take, this is not a very complex sale. I'm giving you an example, but it's something everybody knows. You may want to know information. Maybe you're a grocery store and you want to know how people feel about shopping, right? So I ask people on a survey, who does the shopping in your house? And you get, I do, I do, I do, I do. Mm. All right. Well, maybe there's some demographic patterns in there, but when you start to talk to people, right, that's not a survey and you ask, you, you might get, I do. I take my recipe book in and I browse the aisles and I get inspired. Well, that group of people loves going to the grocery store. I I get to leave my kids behind, right? Like whatever it is, (laughs) this is a great thing. And then you might get, I do. I want to get in and I want to get out. A survey isn't going to tell me that. I mean, I need to hear it in the conversation and the follow-up, the tone of voice, the follow-up questions, the details they provide. We need to have conversations to understand the nuance of that. So it's not that data is bad. Data tells us who who to go ask what their shopping experience is like. But I need to dig deeper to really get to that emotion around it. Because if I understand the emotion around it, I can best serve their actual needs. Well, you know, and what's interesting about that is, you know, because I was thinking of examples of tools that uh, vendors, again, an IT background that, that I have, I've seen that like for years, right? Everybody creating ROI calculators, TCO calculators, and so on. Yet when you talk to buyers, you know, they don't believe any of it's credible, right? They really just almost on its face, they don't believe it uh, unless they run it through their own process. So, so that idea of really being authentically credible with buyers um, and not just trying to shoehorn them into some program or project is such a critical thing. So, so I love the fact of getting beyond the data to actually listening to them. 
So in, you know, so we talked a little bit and before we got on the, the, the interview uh, metrics, right? So, so far I'm hearing a lot of things that sound very qualitative and um, you can attach some metrics to qualitative examination, but, but where do metrics fit into this? Because we're hearing everything now is, you know, it's metrics based, it's account-based marketing, all that stuff is, is happening right, you know, before our eyes and everybody wants to measure everything. How does this approach dovetail with a metrics focus? It's a really good question. So I'm gonna sort of parse this into two parts. So first of all, if you wanna change the outcome that you have, the single most important thing you do if you do nothing else is change what you measure. Because when you change what you measure, you change the behavior of what you do. And we are, as marketers have so many things we can measure that we often measure the wrong things. So, um, so that's sort of answer number one. The, the, the magic happens when we think about different kinds of metrics. So we need metrics that hold marketing accountable. And the things that hold a marketer are not how many people visit our website. It's not how many people open a piece of content. Accountability metrics need to be, how are we impacting the business? Because we will do different things when we're measured by revenue contribution, time in the sales process, average deal size, things that we think sales owns, but marketing can contribute to quite significantly. So that should be what we held accountable to. Now we still need to understand as marketers how to improve our programs and improve engagement. So we still need to track opens and views and visitors, but that's for us internally. That's for our work of making the best converting landing page we can. It's not what the organization should use to assert marketing's value. Because when we do that, we focus on the wrong things that mm. drive the wrong behavior. So if I'm measured by how many people come visit me on the website, I go after a big group of people. But you know what? In an ABM model, for example, I don't wanna go after a universe. I wanna go after a very specific targeted profile of organizations. So if you measure me by volume, I'm gonna do the wrong things. If you measure me by impact, now I, as my marketing, can direct my dollars, direct my people to the types of activities that are really going to move the needle. Well, yeah, it's kind of like uh, I work with a lot of owner-led businesses, usually between 10, 15, 20 million dollars in revenue. And one of the first things I, I help them focus when they, when, they, when they say, we want to talk about growth, I say, I want to look at your margin contribution. Because we can always grow unit sales. We can even grow top line if we just eat margin. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's not the hardest thing in the world to do, to just drive that for a while. You go out of business, but hey, on the way, it'll look like you're getting better. But really looking at that. So, so I, I love your quote there about you, if you want to change an outcome, you have to change what you measure. That is a very powerful thought. And, and, and you're right. In, in, on the marketing side of things, I see, especially in large organizations, and, and even frankly, a lot of small companies that hire marketing agencies and so on, and good, competent folks, but they get a lot of vanity metrics that don't actually convert into anything. They actually make more money. Are you making more money now than you were a year ago when you retained that firm? It's not the agency's fault because we don't want to give the agency access to the data that can actually help inform better decisions because, oh, don't worry, that's in our systems. You don't ever get to see that. Exactly. And that's not fair. We handicap these creative, smart people 
by only giving them a subset of things that they are allowed to look at. We handicap ourselves when the owner walks down and says, what's our social strategy? What's our Facebook ad strategy? But no, that those are tactical things that marketers need to care about. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out what's our go-to-market strategy. Right. Who are we focused on? What's the value proposition we're attracting people with? Where do we make the most money, right? What market opportunity is that? And are we we're interacting with those people and those buyers? If our sales process is, you know, on average 98 days long, can we make it 92 days? On an individual deal, that doesn't matter much. Aggregated across 100 accounts or 1,000 accounts, whew, that matters quite a lot. Can we increase our average deal size, right? We've already done the work to attract those companies to us. Maybe they give us on average $15,000. What if we could make that $22,000? What would that mean? What do we have to deliver to do that? Who in the buying process do we have to involve that maybe we don't today? What new capability do we need to build in the product to do that? All of that is the go-to-market strategy that we need to be focused on, particularly if we are a smaller business, because we have limited money. We have limited time and people. We got to be really particular where we spend that. Absolutely. Well, Samantha, look, we could go on all night because this is a, this is a, obviously a very energized and favorite topic for you as it is for me. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to stop by and, and, and share these some killer insights here. So if somebody listening uh, said, gee, that's Samantha's really smart. I'd like to know more about her and connect with her. How should they best get in touch with you? Oh, I love hearing from people. I hope they do reach out. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at, you know, Samantha Stone Marketing. That's, um, I'm definitely there. But if you're really interested in more about what we do, or you want to download some free templates and all kinds of resources and, and look at some articles and things, unleashedpossible.com is a great place to go. Um, that will tell you all about what we do and give you access to a whole bunch of things and resources that will hopefully help you do a better job. Fantastic. Samantha Stone, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.